chapter 14. Again, I, I did not get through this message last week. It was just really a two-point message, but I only got through the first point. So we're going to be reviewing a little bit from last week and then getting into the second point of here. But Acts chapter 14, verse number 1. It says, And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake, that a great multitude of the Jews and of the Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Long time therefore abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part held with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when there was a great assault made both of the Gentiles and also the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were aware of it and fled unto Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and unto the region that lieth round about. And there they preached the gospel. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, eminent in his feet, being a cripple, a cripple from his mother's room, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. When the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Laconia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurus because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates, and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you these things? We are also men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without a witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they, the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We ask your blessing upon the message today. Lord, I pray you control what I say and how I say it. May your word feed us and help us. Lord, help meet needs that are here. Draw us closer to you through the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted. Lord, I pray for that conviction and that drawing. That even this morning they would repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Lord, may you get all the glory and honor. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So last week we began this, and we are in the midst of Paul's first missionary journey. They were commissioned out of the church there in, uh, in Antioch of Syria. Uh, remember what happened there? I'm not going to get, I got more into detail last week in summarizing how the great revival broke out of that church. That becomes the key church. Barnabas was sent by the church of Jerusalem. It began, it's exploding, he needs help. The person that the Lord put on his heart to, to bring in to help him was this man named Saul, who was converted all the way back in Acts chapter 9. Several years have passed, and now Barnabas goes and finds him and brings him to Antioch of Syria. And for a couple of years there, you have Barnabas and Paul serving as pastors of that church 
teaching and preaching. So the church is growing. There arises five key men in that church. And the Lord then comes to them and says, Separate me, Paul and Barnabas, worms of the work I have called them. We have the beginning and the structure and the pattern of how world missions is to take place. It's how God goes to a local church, calls men out for that church to send them um, to, to begin uh, uh, preaching the gospel and establishing churches. And so you could just imagine being there at that church when the Lord says to separate Paul and Barnabas. I mean, the key men there who the Lord marks to say, I'm going to send them. So, they're obedient, they send them. Again, they head down to Cyprus, then they head up into Pamphylia. That's where Paul was actually sick at that time, we believe, from the book of Galatians. That's why we don't see him preaching there. And then he heads up to Antioch of Pisidia. And we have, we, there we get the outline, basically, of what Paul would preach in those synagogues when he would come in. And we spent several weeks looking at the arguments Paul would make for Jesus, in fact, being the Christ. But, of course, he was ran out of town pretty quickly. And that's when we come down to Iconium, and that's where we're at right now. Matter of fact, can I go ahead and get that slide? So he comes down to Iconium at this time. We began to look at it last week, and the angle we're going to look at this, this week is this. We see in Paul and Barnabas what we need in our life. We have to recognize the responsibility that we have with truth, with the gospel. The very moment you repented and placed your faith in Christ, your mission in life changed. Just like with Barnabas and Paul, there's no different. I, I've got to get, this, get you to see your responsibility that you, in fact, did become a real ambassador for Christ. You have a responsibility with that gospel. And so what we can learn from Acts chapter 14, there's a lot, but what we're looking at, what we can learn is things that will help us as we set out to try and be that servant when you head into work and you want to preach the gospel. When you're talking to your family, to your neighbors, you know what? You're going to face persecution. You're going to face some really difficult circumstances when that begins, as we're going to see with Paul. We're going to see the different things that you need Things to protect you. And so, that's what we're looking at here. Let's go ahead and get with that slide. So, this was, again, we looked at this last week. This is the portion we're at. He's really at the conclusion. We'll finish up the first missionary journey next week, and then we'll get in Acts chapter 15, and, and then into the second missionary journey from there. The, the Antioch over here to the right, uh, right there, that, that is Antioch of Syria. That is the, that's the church that just exploded. They head down to Cyprus. It's in Patmos there. That's where the governor himself is converted. Then they head up into Perga, which is the area of Pamphylia. And that's where Paul more than likely was very sick at that time because he did not preach. Then he heads up in that treacherous journey right there. The journey to get to Antioch of the city, it was was well known a route that you did not want to take. If you remember, even Alexander the Great talked about that. He didn't want to mess with that route. So he's there and he gets ran out of town to Iconium. And then I don't have Lystra on here, but Lystra is just south, a little bit east, uh, only about 18 miles away is where Lystra is. And this, by the way, if you don't recognize it, this is modern-day Turkey right here, is what we're looking at, where these cities are. And this is the area known up top, Antioch of Pisidia, where he begins preaching as Galatia. That's where you get the epistle Galatians that is in the New Testament. It's written to these series of churches right here that Paul is starting on his very first missionary journey. Thank you, that's good. And so now we're getting into this as to what is needed as we set out to serve God. Because the moment you head out those doors, you are an ambassador and you do represent Jesus Christ. And you have a responsibility with the gospel. The problem is, when those difficult circumstances do arise, many times we just go back into our shell and like to pretend we don't have that responsibility. You say, well, it's good enough that I tithe, that I give the missions. Those things are needed and right, of course. 
but you have a response. There's people that the Lord's going to put before you that I will never meet. The people that God puts before you is not by accident. And you have a... Do you understand? We possess the greatest truth the world needs. There's nothing that's close to it. Nothing. And you have it. And so, as last week as we began, I only got through the first point, and that we saw that as you begin to serve God, you're going to face persecution, and you need to know how to handle persecution. We looked at two areas of Paul's life last week, and, and, and what took place when persecution came. That was boldness and wisdom. So he heads in, he begins preaching as he always does, and the persecution arises. Remember, I talked about last week, because I love the wording of it there, in Acts chapter 14, when it says, they so spake. I mean, it could have just said they spake, they preached, but it says they so spake. In other words, you're getting an idea here, through the Word of God, that you can just see the passion with which Paul preached. I mean, he so spake. And they had the conversions taking place. But, of course, the unbelieving Jews... Remember, the word used for unbelieving there is fascinating. It means unpersuadable. The word used there in Acts chapter 14 for unbelieving Jew means unpersuadable. There are those that we talk to, it doesn't matter how strong your arguments are, they're not going to hear it. They are set against it. That's what Paul was dealing with. Now, the persecution he faces in Iconium is different than what he faced in Antioch of Pisidia. This starts off as more behind the scenes. It begins to take place, and Paul stays here, the Bible says, a long time. And so in trying to determine what what length of time was he there, we really don't know. We know it's been used throughout the book of Acts anywhere from a month to three years. Most commentators like to say that he's probably there in the area of six months. And so he knows the persecution is coming. There's poisonous talk being talked about behind the scenes. We have a bit of idea... Of, of perhaps of what lies are being spread about Paul through a book that comes about later on. It's, it's certainly not scripture um, by any means, but it tells us of what took place in Iconium. And, and it even describes the Apostle Paul. We looked at that last week as it described his presence. But they tried to uh, blame Paul for the breaking up of a family saying that he got involved with a woman there, and that was the lies that were being spread behind. What we do know from Acts chapter 14 was certainly whatever was being said, it divided the city. It divided it. You had about the city... And this, I, I researched and researched to try and find a decent population of Iconium. And, and really, I couldn't. It borders really right there on the area of, of, you know, of Galatia. And it was a main hub and region. But I couldn't find anybody willing to put a number down on what that population was. But it would have been a significant place right here. And so Paul's there, the city is divided, and yet you see Paul, though, even though the persecution is there, it maintains boldness. So we looked at the importance of boldness as we serve God. And I've been quoted for one commentator, let me remind you of this. I thought his words were better than anything I could have said. He said this, boldness is the quality that makes you go through. Boldness is the quality that makes you go through when you're being resisted. And if you don't have it, you'll never go through because you'll always be resisted. Listen, when you determine you're going to serve God and do what's right, it's going to take boldness. It's going to take boldness. 
You're going to find boldness in the simple thing of just handing out a track. All of a sudden, that challenge hits you. That, 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 because the truth is, you know, I, I, I don't know an actual percentage, but I would guess probably around 90% they don't want it. But it's those few who do. Just like last week, I hope he's here tonight. We had that pizza guy come in last week. Sheldon, thank you. Sheldon came in. Tattooed up, comes in, sees all of us here, pizza's being delivered in the afternoon, all these people here. Just seen what he saw. He came back to church that night. Came back, sat right back over there. Came in late. Afterwards, I got up going through the gospel, and I can see him just staring at me as I'm going through what Christ did. Right there. And guess who was one of the two to put his hands up that night? Sheldon. And then, who was it? Was it who talked with him? Was it Greg? And then outside my door, I was talking with some other people in town, so when I came out, and he's right outside there, and you could just see the tears in his eyes. And he said, yeah, I came to deliver the pizzas, and I just saw everybody. You know, by the way, if we decide to adapt to become like change point, we don't have that. We should be different in a culture that is turning from God. We should stand out more and more. In other words, there might be 99 people that, that, are, 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 that don't want it, but there's always the Sheldons out there that when they see it, I want it. I want it. But to get there, it takes boldness. It takes boldness. <clears throat> we see that with Paul. Not only that, but of course it took wisdom. We looked at that. It took wisdom in regards that they had decided they were going to kill Paul. They were going to stone him. Which, of course, we knew then the Jews were behind it. They were going to despitefully use them. In other words, they were going to torture them, and then they were going to kill him. And so Paul, hearing this, they head out. They said, it's time to go. It's time to go. Now we pick it up where we left off last week when he leaves. You still see his boldness because he doesn't head that far away. As I mentioned already in the slide, he heads about 17, 8 miles south is all he goes. Basically, a little bit less than one day's full journey is where he travels. He heads down there. He travels down there. And just like he always did, he didn't hide. He didn't hole up in some little house or some cave down there. He immediately preaches when he arrives. Now understand this. The devil's not going to give up the fight against Paul. If the devil cannot discourage you through incredibly difficult circumstances to stop serving, whether that's persecution or another means, he's not going to give up. He's going to come at Paul in a different way in Lystra. A way that is common that so many multitudes fall to. It's a way that he even used in the Garden of Eden. But he knows how serious this man is. The man who was once the persecutor of the faith. The man responsible for the very first martyr. Now with such passion, confirming that Jesus is in fact the Christ. So he's fighting him. And the avenue he's going to take, we're going to see here, is the avenue of pride. He's going to try his best to appeal to the pride of this man. So Paul heads in, he's preaching. We don't learn of any synagogue that's here, so it's doubtful that there was one. He heads right to the market, so that was, that was out of the norm for Paul. So it's doubtful that there was a synagogue. He is preaching, and while he's preaching, there's a man that catches his attention. A cripple. Their eyes lock, you can just see their eyes locking throughout the message. 
The man hanging on every word as Paul is preaching. Little does Paul know, this, little does Paul know, this man has never walked one day in his life. This is going to be one of those genuine, true miracles, not the nonsense we see today. My shoulder was, it was hurt. It feels so much better now. It's so good. You don't ever see somebody without an actual limb all of a sudden have a limb. You don't see that. You don't actually see muscle and, and, and the whole entire structure of a limb take shape in a second. This is genuine. This is real and of God. So Paul is preaching. All the people are there gathering. Listen to this man preach. And in the middle of his sermon, he stops. Paul had perceived the faith. This man is hanging on every word. Just imagine you're there in this assembly. And Paul tells him, in verse 9, the same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly behold him, and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, verse 10 of Matt, stand upright on thy feet, and he leaped and walked. Because this man is a cripple, regardless of the population also of Lystra, by the way, everybody's going to know him. Everybody's going to know this man. He's never walked one day in his life. He's a grown man now. There he is. He's there. Paul stops in the middle of of a sermon and tells that man who has never stood up, stand up to thy feet. And in an instant, he jumps up and starts leaping. Could you imagine being there, what everybody just witnessed? They just can't believe what they just saw. I mean, they all knew him. He's never walked one day in his life. He's jumping up and down. Paul, no doubt, is just thrilled and amazed at God's grace in his life, what God's just done for this man. And Paul in his heart hoping that this is confirming that these men are, in fact, from Jehovah God to listen to their message. But that's not what takes place. And so they finished the meeting, actually. The people are discussing in their own language, Laconium, what just happened. And they come to a wrong conclusion based on something by tradition that happened in Lystra. Let me read what happened in Lystra. This is their tradition. The God that, uh, pre- well previous to the events of Paul being there, that the God Zeus and Hermes had visited Lystra incognito asking for food and lodging, that they had showed up as regular men. And that all turned them away except for a peasant named Philemon and his wife. Then those gods, Zeus and Hermes, took vengeance on Lystra by drowning everyone in a flood in the town. But they, with the exception of Philemon and his wife, in a simple cottage they built into a temple where those two were to serve as priest and priestess. And so it was based on that tradition what led to their conclusion. They were afraid that Zeus and Hermes were back. Jupiter and Mercury, depends Roman or Greek. It's the same, same exact gods by their pagan traditions, whether it was Greek or, or Rome, and that that's, was the different names assigned by each culture. And so that's what they think, and, and they actually were thinking, we don't want to make the same mistake that happened before. So they are convinced, once they saw the power, that we are dealing with actual gods. And so they're preparing a sacrifice in honor of Paul and Barnabas, believing that we have Jupiter and Mercury with us, we have Zeus and Hermes, they're down there present with us. Paul hears about it. 
what, wait, what's going on? What's the celebration taking place? Paul, they think, they, they think that you guys, you guys are, are, are Ju- Jupiter and Mercury. And Paul, you know, rips his clothes and, and, and runs out there and says, No, man, please stop. We're men of like passions like you are. We're just like you. We're not gods. And he pleads with him, No, listen, I am here to tell you to turn from the very thing you're doing right now. I am here to try and get you to turn to the living God. What you're following, he uses the word vain things. It's perfect. That, that word literally means here in this verse, no things. That's what they were worshiping. It was really nothing. There's nothing to it. There is no Zeus. There is, there is no Hermes. It's, it's, it's made up tradition. He says, I am telling you, I am trying to get you to turn to the one true God. That what you're doing now is complete vanity. And he's pleading with them. And his efforts work. It did stay the people from performing the sacrifice unto them. But let's back up here for a second. So once that miracle is performed, all of a sudden these thoughts come into the people that these are gods. Make no mistake who's behind these thoughts. You know, Paul could have said to Barnabas, I have a feeling if he, if, if he was like many in, 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 our, in, in our circles today, in ministry today, perhaps there would have been a different conversation. Perhaps Paul would have said to Barnabas, you know, you know Barnabas, this is an open door for us. Think of what the Lord has done. Barnabas, do you understand the influence we can have in this town for the cause of righteousness? Barnabas, I can see what God's doing through this. I can see it. He's allowing them to lift us up so you and I can glorify God. You laugh, but I'm telling you, stuff like this happens all the time. Do you understand? It gets sickening how much we actually see motivated by pride in our own churches. That is completely flesh-driven. Barnabas, this would open so many doors to us. We would be the key men of this town. We could use this for righteousness. We can use this for goodness. I think we should have an idea day. Let's learn how we can use this culture for the furtherance of the gospel. The Lord has blessed us with this position before these men. Let's not waste it. Hmm. Pride. Pride is what led to the downfall of Lucifer himself. The anointed cherubim. And he's in heaven when that takes place. Again, Satan used this with Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's, it's a powerful emotion. He knows what it can do, and he knows if he can get a motivation to change, he's won. He knows that if I can get, just get this man to get focused on himself and not on actually God's glory, God's hand will be removed. Why does Satan know that? Because it happened to him. Pride appeals to your flesh. You had better believe this was a temptation here. Paul would have none of it, though. 
We, we don't see it all at him ready to give in to pride. There's no hint of it in the text. He knew it was a trap of Satan. Now, we have out here, our inlet is called what? Cook Inlet. Do you know how Captain Cook died? He got down to Hawaii in his explorations. He's the same man, by the way, where I was at New Guinea. That little island, New Ireland and New Britain, right there. We were on New Ireland. New Britain was the island just south of us, there, on, south of the equator. He's the guy who named him. When he went through there, it reminded him, he was, he was English, it reminded him of, of Britain and, and Ireland. He named him New Britain and New Ireland. There's a statue, I think, with Captain Cook in downtown Anchorage right now. So I think there is. I don't know. With the woke movement, who knows? Maybe they took it down. I don't know. But he gets down to Hawaii. He gets into this bay when he arrives. And they thought he was this god Lona or something like that. He liked it. They basically began worship. He got whatever he wanted from them. He enjoyed it. However, that backfired quickly. It appealed to his pride. He gets into a fight with one of the villagers. He hits him. The villager decides to hit him back. The villager hits Captain Cook back, and they heard him groan in pain. And all the men watching realized, wait, he's not a god. They killed him right there. They killed him right there. Listen, that temptation of pride is powerful. You think about this. Paul actually demonstrated humility when he left Iconium for Lystra. His, had, he been, had he been a man of, uh, of, of, that was pride-driven, it's very possible that he might have died in Iconium. Because his pride could have kept him there. He had boldness. He was staying throughout all the persecution. But when he realized that that assault, the word meant a rush. I mean, they were coming there to kill him. And they let him know, they're coming here to kill you. His pride could have kept him there. But he left. A common temptation you will face as you begin serving God and you begin to see God's blessing is pride. Is pride. Situations will come up that can lead to it when God begins to bless and you begin to think more of yourself than you ought to. Forgetting that you're just a sinful creature being used of a holy God who gets all the glory and certainly not any of us. Look how Paul dealt with pride. Look at it in second, and this can help you in a lot of ways. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to show you how this man handled pride. Well, what led to his success in handling pride, maybe I should say it that way. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Paul was subject to it and he knew it. He knew that was a temptation he had to be on guard for. Verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations... Uh, uh, that were given to me, a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that he might, de- uh, 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 that he might, uh, that it might depart from me. Excuse me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now here's Paul's conclusion. 
Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Because if he is exalted above measure, that power is gone. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. When, when I see how frail and, and, and my own weakness in this flesh, it is then that I am actually strong because that's when the power of Christ is resting upon him. So Paul here telling us how he deals with it, how I know through the abundance of revelation, I know how tempting it is for me to think I am something more than I actually am. For me to come into those different places, those different churches and say, look how God is using me. Yet it is true. I mean, you can see how God used the thorn in his flesh. Go back to, we're not going to turn there. But Philippians chapter 1. When he's in the Roman prison and you have others in ministry that are using Paul's imprisonment to bash him, to try and lift themselves up as somehow preeminent. But Paul's response is incredible. He said, you know what, just, just as long as they're preaching Christ. Paul didn't care about his name. He didn't. He's sitting in a Roman prison facing execution. But in chapter 1, he makes it clear, just as long as they preach Christ, he's going to let God handle their sin. He wasn't worried about his name. And Paul said, I understood, but I, I could be faced with this temptation. And he said, what I discovered was this. I had this thorn in the flesh. I had this infirmity that was on me. I was asking God over and over and over, please remove it. Please remove it. But it's then when the Lord responded and said, said unto Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Do you understand that there are different infirmities or different things that God allows into our life, that the truth is they're there to do nothing but help you. They're there to prevent something in your life. This week, we had rain at teen camp. I wonder if God just wasn't preventing something. No, we wanted the good weather we prayed for. It was the only camp we didn't have it. I mean, literally, at the amen of chapel, as we walk out, what happened? Boom. Sun was out. I wonder what he prevented. I wonder if some sin would have came up. I wonder if somebody would have got hurt. Listen, there are times in your life that perhaps that infirmity that you have, that God is using it to prevent something in your life. But Paul recognizes, I have this thorn in my flesh. I was asking God, but then God let me know, listen, no, 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 it's there to help you. Apart from this, Paul, you are likely to forget you're simply still just a sinful man. And I'm reminding you with this thorn in the flesh how much you need me and how weak you really are. For some, it's so important how you handle the thorn in flesh in life. Because some, it turns to bitterness. For some, anger comes in over it. I've asked the Lord over and over. And then you begin to make wrong decisions because it actually changes how you view God and how you view your relationship with God. You don't handle that thorn right. And the key was this. What Paul learned was what? My grace is sufficient for thee. Here's what we do. We put stipulations on our life what we think is essential for us. 
Well, this is what I need, and this is what I need in my life, and this is what I need in my life. I have news for you. Know what you need? God's grace. Whatever it is you're facing, God's grace is sufficient. It is. Whatever it is, it is sufficient. Paul learned that. My grace is sufficient for thee. But we allow other things to sustain us. We look at other, other circumstances that we depend on, and that's really what we draw strength from, instead of simply the grace of God. Paul praying, thinking he needed this out of his life, but he found out what he needed was simply God's amazing grace. And then when Paul realized it, when it clicked, he was now thankful for it. Lord, let it stay. I'm now going to rejoice in my infirmity. Matter of fact, all the distractions, all that you put on me, that reminds me of how human and how frail I am. I will rejoice in those. Because he said what? Because when I am weak, I know I am strong. What did he mean by that? He was referring back to the words that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He knew if I stay like this, I have God's blessing. That's what the devil was trying to attack in Iconium. He had to get God's blessing off of his life. Hasn't the devil done that with God's people throughout the Word of God? If he can't get a direct attack in to stop you, he tries a back door. Let me try this. Be careful. When we walk out, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's what we are. The devil doesn't find one angle working, he'll come another way. He'll come another way. If we're going to be successful as we serve God, we do need to know how to handle those difficult situations. We do need to know how to handle persecution. That does come. Listen, and you can see it right now. We have churches as corporate bodies throughout our nation right now that don't know how to handle persecution. They're trying to blend in with this culture right now. You want to know the real reason why? Because we don't like to stick out. We don't like to face persecution because of our stand. Come with us. We're just like you. We're pretty cool. Look at my tattoo. Look, I can preach in blue jeans. I'm just like you. Come, come. They don't want to stick out. The problem is we have a culture that's turning from God. And as this culture gets further and further from God, they should see a great difference with us. That wasn't true in 1952. Do you understand that? That wasn't true in 1952. For the most part, it was still a Christian-based culture. So it looked very similar between the lost world and the saved world. That's no longer true. We should be different. And as you walk out those doors, again, you're going to face persecution. You decide, you know what, I have a responsibility with the gospel. I'm going to get some tracts when I leave here. I'm going to try and speak with some people. Persecution is going to come. You handle it with that boldness from being filled with God's Spirit. Using wisdom. Boldness with wisdom is needed. Both. Boldness without wisdom will get you in a whole lot of trouble. That boldness can become a source of pride. Look how bold I am. And then you have to look for those other avenues that the devil comes in. In this case with Paul, it could have been pride. It could have been a world of difference. 
Listen, if we will just follow verses like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Matthew 6, 33, those verses that we, that we talk about and uplift all the time, it will protect you from so much. The very things that I'm dealing with now, just make your life about Him. We are servants. We are missionaries. And we need to know that resistance and temptations will come. We're going to need to stand against those. If we're going to be effective, if we're going to do right, we need to stand against those. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Now let me ask this question.